Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, great to be here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Rich. Um, I'm going to be kind of leading us through this next bit. And so I think we've had a great morning so far, um, a great worship time, getting into the presence of God. And so I think the best thing to do right now is to just stay in that place and get straight from there into the Word of God, um, which is another way that he speaks. And so you'll be pleased to know this morning um, that at week nine of our um, journey through the book of Ephesians, which is the series that we're doing in at the moment. And we've finally arrived at the heady heights of chapter two. Um, So we've worked through chapter one. We're now at the start of chapter two. Um, And so this morning we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter two, verses one to nine, which is going to come up on the screens behind me as well. In this, uh, the apostle Paul is writing and he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And as we've seen throughout the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul packs a phenomenal amount um, into just a few verses. And so here in this passage, we find what um, some people might call almost the fullest and whole um, explanation of the gospel or the good news. But for me, as I've been kind of looking and working through the passage, it feels like the whole thing hinges on that phrase in verse 7, you know, in order that in the coming ages, God might show the incomparable riches of his grace. And it's a verse that the more I think about it, embodies so much of what God's been teaching me and doing in my life over the past year or so. It's a reminder to us that we are his trophies of grace, no matter what we do or how we might feel at any particular moment. And so I want to be really honest with you this morning. At times over the past year, I found it really difficult and I found myself really struggling with a sense of worthlessness, you know, finding inside an inner fear that no matter what I do, it's not good enough. It's not as good as if someone else did it. And that's the challenge I've been living with at times. A deep sense of dread that impacts everything, impacts my relationships with others, makes me think, why would, why would they want to be hanging out with me? And they've probably got something else better to do. Impacts my prayer life. You know, why would God want to hear from me? I'm not worth anything. It impacts my uh, work life, you know, making comparisons with others. You know, I know I'm, I'm a young guy. I'm not... Gus, I'm not Adrian, I'm not Mike. It's a fear that I know ultimately stems from unbelief. Believing that who I am isn't, isn't, isn't I'm not who I, who I want to be. 
you know, believing that I should be something else. I should be this idea of what a, a man should be. I should be, you know, what a church worker should be. I should do what I should be doing. This passage, though, speaks right to the heart of that. Epitomizes everything that I've gradually been coming to see about myself over the last year. Being a trophy of grace means that I have to recognize the incredible truth that God isn't just willing, but rather delights to show himself through me now and for all eternity. That in all my brokenness and fear and sense of worthlessness, God is delighted to be shown through me, to show the riches of his grace through me. I'm not defined by what I do, but by who I am in him. That's what he's been doing in me. And I hope that by the end of this morning's talk, we'll come to see that it's something he's got for everything, every one of us. He's calling all of us to be his trophies of grace. And so that's where we're going. It's gonna, it might get a little bit gloomy at times, but that's okay, because there's a light that we're heading towards, the good news of who God is and what he's done for us. A couple of months ago, I got to that point in the year, every year, which my bank balance dreads for the remaining 364 days, um, which is the time when I have to renew my car insurance. And so as you do, kind of, you look around all the different comparison websites to get the best deal. Um, so I found the right one. I got all my stuff together, filled in all the details, uh, found my proof of no claims bonus, which incidentally, I think there's nothing which shows that you are now an adult more than knowing what a proof of no claims bonus is and how you would find it. Um, so I got all that together, sent it off, thought, that's it, all done. A couple of days later, I get an email back from the insurance company saying, dear Mr. Bopit, please send us proof of your no claims bonus. And so I think, okay, obviously they've made a mistake somewhere. So what I do, I just write them a nice, polite, friendly email saying, please check back to the first email I sent you. You'll find all the information you're after. It's all there. A couple of days later, get another email back saying, dear Mr. Bopit, please send us proof of your no claims bonus. And so by this point, it's slightly annoying. I think, you know, I've done this. I just want to get it, get it done with. Nobody really likes dealing that much with insurance and all that kind of stuff. Less, less, okay. So I type the email out. Please refer back to my first email. You'll find all the information you want. It's all there. I've all sent it off. A couple of days later, I'm sure you can imagine by this point, start to work out what's coming next. I get another email through saying, Dear Mr. Bopit, Please send us proof of your no claims bonus. And so by this point, it's really annoying. I just want just to get this done. Come on, how stupid can this company be? You know, they can't even read the email I sent them. And so there I am at my computer, about to send off kind of an angry, annoyed email uh, to these guys when suddenly the thought strikes me. Maybe I should go back. Maybe I should just check that first email that I sent. And so I go back and I have a look. And, of course, what I've done is I've committed that most basic of technological errors. I've forgotten to add the attachment to my email. Um, 
Yes, we've all done it. We've all done it. Um, and so instead of an angry, annoyed email, they got a rather apologetic, humble email with the right attachment in this time. Why am I telling you this story? The problem for me there was that I was so convinced that I was right. I wasn't even willing for a moment to consider that the problem lay with me rather than with someone else. I was rushing headlong in one direction, utterly convinced that this company was the ones who got it wrong. It was their fault. The problem was at their end. And each moment getting further and further away from the solution. And that's the point that Paul is making in the first three verses of this chapter. We live in a world where human beings, left to our own devices, not only choose the wrong direction, but willingly and gladly continue on down that path, further and further, increasingly convinced that we're right and everyone else has it wrong. And Paul explains the reason for this in two ways. He says the problem is both outside us as humans, and it's both inside us. It's outside us, and it's inside us. And so on the outside, he writes that we follow the ways of the world, you know, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And I think Peterson, uh, in the message translation, puts it really helpfully when he says this. Um, you filled your lungs with polluted unbelief, and then exhaled disobedience. In other words, there's something wrong with the world that's almost in the air itself. The very atmosphere of our world has become polluted and corrupted by sin in a way that it was never meant to be. And as a result, society itself is just so willing to rush off in the wrong direction, sweeping us up, carrying us along with it. There's something wrong with the world that makes brokenness and fear and misery seem as natural as breathing. It was never meant to be like that. But at the same time, the problem is also inside us. We're not cut off from the rest of humanity. We can't pin the blame on the world and deny any responsibility. Each of us choose for ourselves that life where at different points we put ourselves at the centre where we prioritise our wants and our needs over those of God or of anyone else. In both the cravings of our bodies, our physical needs, what Paul calls the flesh, and in our minds, our thought processes, our intellectual reasoning, we've all chosen to live for ourselves. And as much as I wish that I could pin some of my mistakes on hormones or emotions... I know that the cold reality is that that loads of the stuff I've done wrong has been thought through and rationalised, and I've still done it anyway. And I didn't want to, but I still did. Both outside and inside, there's something pulling us in the wrong direction. To use Paul's language, um, it's caused us to both transgress and to sin. A transgression, a trespass is a false step. It's a a knowing step across a boundary that you know you really shouldn't go across. Sin is more of a a missing of the mark. It's taking aim and you've gone for it and you've fallen short. It's both active and passive. Before God, we are both rebels 
and failures. We've both knowingly stepped across his best for us and for our world, and we've failed to live up to it. And Paul doesn't pull any punches uh, in his diagnosis of where this leaves us spiritually. We're dead. We're at the end. We are exhausted. We are empty. Spiritually, not physically, even though we go on living inside, we're dead. And as a result, we are, by nature, deserving of wrath, of God's just condemnation on us. It's that that makes him angry, but it's not an anger like ours. His wrath is never impulsive. It's not arbitrary. It isn't um, mysterious. It's not malicious or vindictive or spiteful. The wrath of God is nothing less than his steady, unrelenting, unremitting hostility to evil in all its forms. When we get angry about little things, he never does. He doesn't fly off the handle. But when we fail to get angry about the very real hurt and suffering in the world, that's what angers God. He is that loving father we heard about earlier. You know, he's, he's so when he, he sees something that's threatening and causing his children to suffer, it gets him angry inside. We've seen it, haven't we, over the last kind of few days or so. When we see the things going on in kind of Paris and in uh, Lebanon and in Kenya, and we look at them and we think, God, how can that be? It's not the way the world was meant to be. How much more does God feel that? The sense of a father who just loves his children and longs to embrace them, but sees their suffering. God's wrath is not opposed to his love. It's an outworking of it against anything that seeks to bring suffering where he wants to bring peace. Anything that wants to bring brokenness where he wants to bring restoration. Anything that wants to bring separation where he wants to bring togetherness. And it's not an easy thing to get our head around, the idea of God being angry. And so you might be sat here this morning thinking, I'm not really sure what I think about that. And that's okay. It's something I've still got questions about. I encourage you, keep exploring, keep investigating, keep thinking it through and asking those questions. I did tell you it might get a little bit gloomy in places. But here's the thing, though. There's a reason why Paul chooses to start us off at that point. And the reason is fireworks. See, over the past um, few days or weeks, you've probably seen and undoubtedly heard kind of hundreds or thousands of fireworks uh, going off, particularly if you're at the uh, Oasis Light Night Spectacular last weekend, which I heard was one of the longest fire display, <laughs> firework displays in history, almost, <laughs> apparently. The thing is, though, how many of those fireworks did you hear going off in the middle of the day? How many fireworks displays are scheduled to start at 11 a.m.? None. Because fireworks show best... They display their brightness best against the darkness. Against the darkness, fireworks are so much brighter. 
And Paul paints us a gloomy canvas. He paints a dark picture in order that what he's about to paint will stand out all the more in its brightness. And in plumbing the depths of reality about the fallen nature of mankind, he's setting us up to soar to the glorious heights of who God is and what he's done for us. And there it is at the start of verse 4, when everything changes. It's like that moment in a power ballad when you know, you know it's been coming, don't you? The whole song has been building to it up to that moment. And then suddenly, bam, there it is. You know, the power of love. <laughs> or whatever your f- choice of power ballad is. I, uh, I asked some people in the office, what, what's, a, what's a good, a well-known choice of power ballad? Unfortunately, um, m- almost all of the ones suggested by Gus and some other people had been written and their bands had been dissolved by the time I was born, which was a slight slight moment of reality. It's it's like that with what Paul's doing here. He's built it up, he's built it up. And then all of a sudden, there it is, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. And the key active verb in the whole chapter only arrives at the start of verse 5. Made us alive. At last kind of bursts out of Paul. It feels like it's what he's been waiting to say the entire time. The whole time he's been painting that canvas of darkness, he's been waiting to say, but God makes you alive. After all the darkness, the fireworks, we were dead but we're alive now in Christ. What he's done for us is nothing less than a miracle, nothing less than a resurrection in our own hearts, bringing life where there was death. And it's all because of him. Over the next couple of verses, Paul highlights four characteristics of God that he's chosen to pour out to us. God shows us his love, his mercy, his grace and his kindness. You know, as much as God's great love makes him angry about all that's evil, all that's wrong in the world, so much more does it make him desperate to draw us close and welcome us in. You know, a good father longing to rush towards us and embrace us and draw us in and welcome us into relationship with him. He's merciful, rich in mercy, withholding that which we deserve. You know, that path of of darkness that leads to death that we were on. Instead, choosing to give us grace. Free, glorious, unlimited acceptance for all who want it. That's the offer for us this morning. Free, glorious, unlimited acceptance it's a grace marked by his kindness in our series over the summer we were working through the book of Ruth in the Old Testament and one theme that kept coming back time and time again was this Hebrew concept of hesed kind of a loyal loving kindness um, that's on display and we see it all the way throughout the Old Testament 
where God's people would turn away from him. They'd go their own way. They'd worship different gods. And yet God would always be seeking to draw them back to him with hesed, with his loving kindness, even against those who betrayed and, and turned away from him time and time again. God, great in love, rich in mercy, full of incomparable grace, always expressing kindness, chooses to pour it out to us. You know, the ultimate source of life and fullness, filling those who are dead and empty. And that's what we were celebrating last week. Um, if you're around, what we did was we had some baptisms. Um, Tom and Emma uh, both took a moment to share something of their story, um, and then we dunked them in a pool of water and brought them back up again. Um, and the reason that we did that was because it's an outward, physical demonstration of the inward, spiritual transformation which had taken place within them. When they went under the water, that's a symbol of everything that Paul is talking about in regards to our spiritual death. When they come back up, it's a representation of everything he's talking about, about what it is to be alive again in Christ. When they went under the water and came back up, it's a sign of their participation in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The ultimate source of life who embraced death, even death on a cross, in order that he might draw us back to him again, in order that we might be joined with him and raised to new life in him. What God has accomplished in Christ, he's also accomplished for us. Where Jesus was dead and has been made alive, so have we when we centre our lives on him. But even that's not the whole story. Paul carries on. Where we were raised to be with the Father again, where Jesus was raised, so are we. Where Jesus has been seated in the heavenly realms, so have we. And that might sound a bit odd to say, um, that we've been raised and seated in the heavenly realms. And when we think about it, it doesn't feel like it lots of the time, does it? You know, maybe when uh, kind of we're in the midst of a great worship time, We've got our eyes closed and our, our hands open. And we think, you know what? I can kind of imagine what it would be like to be raised and seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus. And then we open our eyes and we look around and we think, the heavenly realms look a lot like Birmingham. And for some of you, you'll be thinking, yes, they do. <laughs> look forward to it. The point Paul is making is that it's not that we're physically taken somewhere else, but that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God has broken into the world, and God is making people alive that they might know now something of what it is to be raised and seated with Christ and made alive in him, that they might know now something of the coming reality that we read about at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. It's not just something that might happen in the future. You know, a vague hope that when we die, things might be all right. There's a longing in the heart of God for humanity to be restored to the highest and best 
that he's got for us. We read back in chapter one of Ephesians that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Now we come to see that it's not just that we have a God on high who pours down blessings to us below, but rather that our true spiritual home is now with God, wherever we are physically. No matter how we might feel at any individual moment, our home, our true home, is in that place of deepest intimacy with him. And part of us is already there. That's the good news. Not that we've found our way to God, but that he's come to us. He's made us alive in him. He's brought us to be with him now and forever. Instead of death, we're made alive to live enjoying the love, mercy, grace and kindness that we've been shown. And that's the glorious good news of who we were and of who we are. But for us, the question this morning is what changes? What changes because of this? At some point this afternoon, we're all going to go off back um, to our homes or to our families or our friends or our housemates or whatever. And tomorrow morning, we're going to carry on with our normal, regular lives. And when that happens, it can be hard to feel in that place that we've been raised and seated with Christ. Monday mornings do not feel like we've been raised and seated with Christ so how do we learn to live knowing and recognising this coming reality wherever we've been uniquely placed? What changes? And I think that what changes for us is that we get to go out recognising that we're now trophies of his grace. And that because of that, everything changes. I'm going to show you something now uh, which might be slightly embarrassing for me, um, but let's go with it anyway. Um, Here's a picture of me with a trophy that I won, um, aged 14. Um, And this is the trophy I got for uh, winning the Portsmouth Potter, Harry Potter quiz competition. Um, Yes, come on. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) I have to say it remains one of my proudest achievements. Um, And the trophy you can see there stood proudly on my parents' mantelpiece for many years um, until I went to university, in which case I came back and discovered it had somehow made its way from the mantelpiece to a box in the corner of the guest bedroom. Um, And I'm not entirely sure how that happened um, or why you'd want to, but I'm still very proud of it anyway. And the thing about trophies is that by their very nature, they provoke the question don't they? How, how did that come to be there? Tell us more of your amazing knowledge of Harry Potter. What happened to get you to receive this trophy? What did you do? The key thing isn't really the trophy itself, as impressive as it might be. When we see a trophy on someone else's shelf or mantelpiece, what we do is we don't go up to it and just gaze at it and go, that is the best trophy I've ever seen. That's the shiniest trophy ever. And just stay there. We want to know, how did, you, how did you get that? What's the story behind it? For my trophy, it came to be because I was able to buzz in 
faster than anyone else, to answer that the tree which guards the secret passageway to the shrieking shack in Hogsmeade is called the Whomping Willow. And that's a sentence you probably didn't expect to hear when you arrived here this morning. Trophies beg the question, what's the story behind it? What's the story behind it? A couple of weeks ago, Adrian was speaking on the theme of power. And so helping us to think through what it means that the power which raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us. And we heard that in raising Jesus from the dead, what God has done is displayed his power for all to see forever throughout all eternity. No one could ever look at the resurrection of Jesus and say, I believe it happened, I believe God did it, but I don't believe he's powerful. It's the ultimate proof of that. And in the same way, what he's done in raising us is decided that he wants to show his grace through us, throughout all eternity, forever. When he raised Jesus from the dead, it's to show his power. When he raises us, it's to show his grace. It's to show his grace. And he's delighted to do it. Verse 7 helps us to see that everything God's done, taking us from where we were to where we are, taking us from death itself into life, raising us again, all of it has been that in the coming ages, from age to age, as time ticks on, as eternity rolls forward, it might all be that he would forever, through us, display the greatness of his grace. God might display through us forever the greatness of his grace. The church is to be God's trophy to the whole of creation, demonstrating the height and length and breadth and depth of God's grace. From age to age, the crowning display of God's grace will forever be the kindness he's poured out to his redeemed people. If you, this morning, have centred your life on Jesus, you are a trophy of his grace. If you've centred your life on Jesus, he is delighted to show through you the riches of his grace. He is. And you know there's no one here that he doesn't desire to show that through. There's nobody here that he doesn't long to show his grace through you and to you. And just as with the trophy on the mantelpiece, the purpose isn't just that as trophies, people are directed to look at us and see how great we are and marvel at us. Because we're not. We're really not. Paul is so clear. It's not us. It's not our works that have saved us. It's a gift from God. The purpose is that as people look at us, they're pointed to the story behind our lives, to the one who's lifted us from death to life. And that doesn't mean we get everything right. It doesn't mean that when we become Christians, we become perfect people. What it means is that even in our brokenness, even in our struggles, God delights to show the riches of his grace through us. I shared at the start what that's meant for me 
over the past year or so. To increasingly learn to live in the light of that amazing truth that God delights to show himself through me. But the truth is, it's an ongoing journey. It's not something I've got altogether. But I know and I trust that God is in me because he says he is. He is working in me. He is wanting to reveal more and more to me his grace and through me his grace for everyone else. That's exciting. That's a privilege. And I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe for you, you're thinking, I still want to investigate this Jesus. I don't really know what I think about him. I'd encourage you, keep, keep looking, keep going deeper. Maybe come along to Alpha on Wednesday night. Chat it through. What is this life that Jesus comes to offer us? Maybe, though, for you this morning, you think, you know what? I want that life. I want that. I feel it inside, the emptiness. I want to be filled by Jesus. In a moment, we're going to pray. When we do, I'd encourage you just to open yourself to God, whether it's the first time or thousandth, thousandth time. Just say, God, fill me with more of you that I might know your grace. Maybe for you, you've been feeling a little bit dry spiritually. You know, it happens to all of us. You, you, know, you don't feel like you've been raised and seated with Christ. It's hard to, to get a sense of what that, what that means when life is tough, when work is long. Maybe for you this morning, the call is to enjoy Jesus again, to learn again, to come and, and fall at his feet and say, everything you are, I want God. Help me to know everything of who you are. Maybe for you this morning, you know that what you need to do is to learn to reveal him, to learn to show that mercy, that love, that grace, that kindness that God has shown to you out to all those around you. And this morning for you might be a reminder, that's who I'm called to be. I'm called to be a trophy of God's grace, one through whom he reveals for all eternity how good he is. Why don't we stand together? You might want to hold your hands out, particularly if any of that resonated with you, just as a, uh, a way of saying, God, I'm here. I want to receive from you. I want to know you again. I pray, Jesus, as we stand before you, knowing the brokenness of our world, knowing the brokenness of our planet, knowing the brokenness of our own hearts, we say, come and fill us again. Come and raise us to life again. Come and fill us with your spirit. Help us to know what it is to be a trophy of your grace, to know your love, to know your mercy, to know your grace, to know your kindness in our own lives. God, I pray, help us to learn to enjoy you, to enjoy 
what it is to be a trophy of your grace, to enjoy that sense of the Spirit inside us, raising us and seating us with Christ on high. And God, help us to reveal it. Help us to live lives which even in their brokenness, even in their struggles, reveal more and more the grace which you have shown to us. Amen.